0: It's really a pleasure to be here. This is my first time um, at Southern Seminary. And you know I have a whole bunch of friends on the faculty, a whole, multiple friends who are graduates of the institution. And so it's really a great joy and privilege to actually get to see the place uh, in person and to be invited to deliver these lectures. Um, what I want to uh, start with is just give you a brief overview of what the three lectures um, hope to accomplish. I realize not everyone's going to be able to attend all three. But just to give you an idea of what you're going to miss out on if you don't come tonight or tomorrow morning. Um, in this first lecture, I want to spend a little bit of time thinking with you about the natural law, uh, what it is, why it matters, how to think about it in comparison with other um, ethical traditions. And then tonight, I want to think with you about um, the relationship of church and state and morality and law, uh, and debunk um, some, some myths, some lies about the relationship between the two, some falsehoods that have kind of crept into American public life when it comes to church and state, morality, and law. And then tomorrow morning, I want to uh, think with you about what, to my mind, are the four essential uh, creational truths that are most um, at risk today, that are most important today. I actually think those things uh, go together. They're being attacked um, in law and culture, and yet they are essential for a well-functioning society. And so we ignore them. We attack them at our own peril. Um, so that's the basic outline. We're going to start with natural law, move on to church, state, uh, morality, and law, and then close with some creational truths that matter, which is another way of saying that this first lecture is going to be the most academic, the driest, the most obscure, the most um, difficult. Uh, the next one will be slightly sexier because we'll talk about law and politics. Uh, we'll talk about church and state. And then the last one will be all the hot button issues that you know, people tweet about and get all worked up about. Um, all right. So that's the basic overview of what we hope to uh, accomplish in these uh, uh, three lectures. Uh, for this first one, let me give you the, the, the roadmap. It's going to come in five parts. Um, I'm going to make sure to leave time for Q&A so we might only get through the first two and if we only get through the first two, that'll be fine. Um, but what I want to do if we get through all five is first to say a little bit about natural law as objective morality. Natural law is the higher law. Natural law is a standard. Uh, first, you know, what is the concept of the natural law? Second, thinking about natural law as compared to other traditions of ethics. Um, my guess is that many of you are going to be more familiar with other traditions uh, of, of ethical theory than you are with the natural law tradition. So I want to give you um, a roadmap of how to compare it to what you might be more familiar with. Uh, third, I'll say a little bit about the starting points for natural law theory uh, with the first principles of practical rationality, the first precepts of the natural law. Uh, fourth. You know, sketch what a full-blown theory would would have to entail, um, encourage some of you to develop um, a full-blown Baptist theory of the natural law, um, put it in a theological context, you know flesh it all out. And then lastly, the fifth part uh, of uh, this afternoon's lecture, uh, the role of God in natural law theory, uh, the, the the lawgiver of the natural law. Okay. So that's the basic uh, roadmap. So if you're taking notes, you can know where we are. If you're waiting for this thing to end, you'll know how far from the end we are. It'll give you um, a rough outline. All right, so first, natural law as objective morality. Um, natural law is not just about the tough cases. It's not just about the stuff that we'll talk about tomorrow morning. It's not just about abortion and LGBT issues and human sexuality in general. There's a certain type of reputation that natural law has gotten where it's just kind of about the pelvic issues. That's not true, Uh, and throughout most of human history, the the role that natural law thinking, theorizing played was that it was about the higher law. It was about objective standards. Uh, It was a standard by which we could judge both individual and communal action. It was a standard by which we could judge human law, man-made law, and what's important to emphasize here is that the, um, the concept here is that natural law was something that was objective rather than subjective. It was something that was knowable by reason. Uh, In virtue of our common humanity, we had common reason, and so we could reason together about what's right and wrong, good and evil. Um, And it had a certain claim to universality. Um, Not that uh, it's something that's culturally constructive or culturally relative, uh, although there will be um, a certain awareness that how the natural law gets implemented and applied in different culture might vary. Uh, So it might be a natural law truth um, that physical safety matters, and therefore safety on the roads matter. But the natural law doesn't tell us whether to drive on the right side of the road or the left side of the road. And so it's culturally relative that here we drive on the right side of the road, and if you're in London, you'll drive on the left side of the road. But it's a universal truth that you can't ignore vehicular safety. That's one of those universals based upon a deeper natural law principle based upon uh, human life, human health, human flourishing. Now, you see this within uh, human history, going as far back this type of ethical reasoning uh, to the ancient Greeks and Romans. Uh, The ancient Greek and Roman world sought to establish objective standards of justice, objective standards of right. And they were doing this to push back on some gross abuses that were taking place in the ancient world. And so, I mean, some of this is captured, if you think of something like um, Thucydides, his uh, history of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, and if you've read through any of Thucydides, you know, the two passages that most frequently get excerpted and included in different anthologies of Western political thought, it's the uh, Mitalinian debate in the Melian dialogue. Um, and it's the, the passage in the Melian dialogue where the Athenians Um, uh, they say that what is justice? It's the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. And they say, look, that's just a natural law. We didn't create this thing. We just discovered it. And it's one of these laws of human existence that the strong get away with what they can and the weak have to suffer uh, what they must. Um, Plato in his Republic, you know, he sets this up as the challenge that he needs to meet. Uh, and so it's uh, Thrasymachus, right, in book one of the Republic, where he says, justice is nothing other than the advantage of the stronger. Might makes right, in other words. Uh, in the Gorgias, another one of the Platonic dialogues, Calicles Callicles is more or less trying to assert the same thing, that, that, that justice is about the, the advantage of the stronger. Um, I'll read you the quote here, that the superior rule the inferior and have a greater share than the inferior. Right. And so what ancient both Greek and Roman thinkers and statesmen, so people like Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, what they're trying to do uh, is to show that there's actually a standard of justice that's provided by nature. Uh, There's a standard of what is right by nature. and So this comes to be known as kind of natural right philosophy. If you read um, a a more recent scholar like Leo Strauss, the title of his Walgreen lectures um, given mid-1950s at University of Chicago are then published as Natural Right and History. Uh, with the idea being that historicist thinkers in the latter um, uh, part of the the modern period uh, had replaced the standard of natural right with a standard of history. And this is where you get the rhetoric of you're on the wrong side of history, as if history is a judge. It's not just the ancient world. This gets developed, so we go from the natural right standard of the ancients to within our own uh, um, immediate political tradition, the Declaration of Independence, uh, which speaks of natural rights which are different than natural right. Uh, We can, maybe during the Q&A, go deeper on that distinction. But you can think about the second paragraph of the Declaration. Uh, Building off of more modern theories of natural rights, uh, the founders declare, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to the secure of these rights, governments are instituted amongst men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it's the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. What's the Declaration getting at there is that nature has uh, secured us, provided us with a standard, it's a standard of natural rights. Governments are created by men. They're instituted by men to protect natural rights. If they become destructive of those ends, the ends that are given to government by nature, protection of natural rights, then the people can abolish government and constitute new government. Right? So there's a standard that's higher than popular opinion, majority vote, et cetera, et cetera. Let me give you one last example of natural law as a higher law. Uh, and it comes from within our civil rights tradition. and uh, the civil rights movement, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., his letter from the Birmingham jail, he cites not natural right, not natural rights. He cites natural law. Right? So we'll finally get to uh, the topic of this lecture. Dr. King, writing from that Birmingham jail, um, you know, addressing his letter to you know, other pastors who are saying, why are you breaking the law? Right? What did you do to get uh, thrown into this jail? Why is the uh, bus boycott, et cetera, et cetera, why are you doing this? Um, This is what he says, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would agree with Saint Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. The concept there of a higher law, vitally important within our own political tradition to say that popular sovereignty, laws that we the people had made, were wrong. They were unjust because they violated the natural law, the eternal law, the moral law, God's law. And King is more or less using all of those different concepts as uh, virtually interchangeable. There are important distinctions uh, that we'll get to. But what he's saying is that there's an objective standard. There's a higher standard that governs what political communities do. And just because it went through the right processes, right, it went through a constitutionally designed process, you voted on it, you uh, uh, enacted it into law, doesn't actually mean it's just. uh, And therefore, we might have a duty to actually engage in civil disobedience, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so that's part one. Uh, Natural law is a higher law. Natural law as a standard of both individual conduct, communal conduct, and therefore political conduct, uh, lawmaking. Uh, Second, how how does the natural law tradition of ethics compare to other traditions of ethics? Um, And so the first thing to say here is that the natural law tradition is fundamentally concerned with happiness, rightly understood. It's fundamentally concerned with human flourishing. It's concerned with goodness. What are the ends that perfect human nature? What leads to the fulfillment, the flourishing, the well-being, the fullness of being of the type of creature that I am? Given the type of creature that I am, there are certain things that perfect me, that fulfill me, that lead to the fullness of my being. Other things that detract from that, that diminish, my flourishing, my happiness, my actually. And, and by happiness, I don't just mean kind of a temporal feeling, pleasure, or something like that. I mean, the, the Greeks would have called eudaimonia, right? It's a deep seated, um, authentic form of happiness. So it's fullness of being, goodness as an end of nature. And lastly, what I'll say is it's something that we can know, uh, that we aren't left without a guide, uh, that God has created us in such a way that our intellects are capable of knowing at least something of the natural law. And obviously, different traditions within the Christian tradition have different um, uh, conclusions about how much the fall darkens our intellect and weakens our will. But fundamentally, as a creational truth, God has created us so that we could know certain truths about the fulfillment of our nature. All right, now, how does this compare to other ethical theories? Uh, Let me start with the um, ethical theory that comes out of uh, uh, thinkers like Hobbes and Hume. Um, uh, uh, something that more or less denies that reason can know what the ends of human nature are, It's a form of reasoning that looks at practical rationality as purely instrumental. It's just a giant uh, mechanism. It's just a giant computer. It can calculate the most efficient means to certain ends, but it can't actually think about what ends we ought to seek, And So Thomas Hobbes in his uh, famous work, The Leviathan writes, For the thoughts are to the the desires, as scouts and spies, to range abroad and find the way to the things desired." So the things that are desired, those are just givens. We have certain desires. And then our thoughts, our intellect, our rationality, those are the scouts and the spies that go about seeking the best way of getting to whatever it is that we desire. David Hume, in his treatise on human nature, writes, reason is? and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. Right? So the idea here is that we have certain passions. And our reason, it is and it ought to be the slave of our passions. Right? You put these things together, whether it's our desires or our passions, they're what determine what it is that we should seek, our thoughts, our reason just calculates how best to get there. When I was in graduate school, I took a great class in 20th century uh, moral philosophy with David Solomon, a, a, a Southern Baptist teaching at Notre Dame. He was probably more Catholic than half of the Catholics uh, on campus. And we read a great book by Simon Blackburn titled Ruling Passions, which is more or less an updated you know, 20th century version of the habesian humean theory of practical rationality. By contrast, what the natural law tradition wants to insist, and for that matter, what the broader Christian tradition wants to insist, is that we have fallen desires. We have misplaced passions. And part of the moral life is to rightly order our desires, rightly order our passions. And that reason can know something about what that right order looks like. Reason can know what we ought to desire, what we ought to be passionate about. And the goal of the moral life is to Uh, rightly order our loves, to use kind of uh, Augustinian language. It's not to act on our base desires and our uh, uh, misguided passions, but it's actually to have our reason purify our desires and our passions towards true goodness. All right, so that's how it's going to compare to the more um, uh, Habesian, Humean way of thinking. The last thing I said there is that, you know, reason can know the ends, substantive ends, not just instrumental rationality instrumental goods that are instruments towards something that our passions or our desires give us it can identify reasons for action that is something that kant tried to correct from hume you know kant famously says you know hume awoken me from my metaphysical slumber and he didn't quite get there uh, kant is like a halfway he he's try he sees the problem with humean ethics with humean rationality he wants to to my mind defend a certain form of kind of like Lutheran pietistic Christianity in the age of the Enlightenment. And he's ultimately unsuccessful, right? And it's kind of like sad for Kant. He was trying to do the right thing. He he couldn't see all the way through. And the problem here is that reason can grasp goods. It can grasp ends, things that are perfected for us. Kant didn't want to set up his theory that way. He thought that would be a heteronomy, right? It'd be something outside of us. He wanted his ethical system to be based on duty, detached from happiness, right? So it's deontology, right? It's it's a theory, it's a logic of duty that has nothing necessarily to do with human flourishing, with human goods, with human happiness. Uh, and so Kant wants to respond to Hume thinking that, well, all right, we can't just act on our desires and our passions, so I need to set up a system of rulemaking, and that'll then regulate our passions and our desires. He didn't get all the way to what I think a sound Aristotelian or Thomistic theory would have gotten to, or what are the substantive ends, the objective uh, goods that are perfective of us. And then second, he wanted his theory to be a a form of self-legislation, autonomous, self-legislation, autonomous practical rationality, which is different than a participated form of rationality. Uh, For Aquinas, the natural law is the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. It's why Martin Luther King Jr. could say that, you know, to put it in terms of Aquinas, an unjust law is one that doesn't square with the natural law and the eternal law, because the natural law is the rational creature's rational participation in the eternal law. Kant wanted to kind of separate those things. He wanted his theory of uh, morality to be autonomous, self-legislating, autonomos. All right, but that's not to say that he got everything wrong. One very important thing that Kant got right, right, is that there are certain moral absolutes. There are certain things that should never be done, because they're always and everywhere wrong. Uh, The way that he generated those was either through a universalizability principle or through what, to my mind, is the more um, uh, productive kind of Kantian principle, which is people, persons, should always be treated as ends and never merely as means, something which the next uh, ethical tradition that we'll look at can't conclude. And this is consequentialism or utilitarianism. Uh, Technically, within the history of thought, utilitarianism comes first, but it's actually a a species of the broader genus of consequentialism. The idea that what you should be concerned about are the consequences. When you're thinking about ethics, you should just think about what's going to lead to the greatest set of good consequences, the least uh, form of bad consequences. Now, there are problems with consequentialist thinking, that natural law theory can provide a solution to. One is that it doesn't provide a standard of what counts as a good outcome, right? So if you look at different consequentialist theorists, is it about desire satisfaction? Is it about pleasure? Is it about utility? If so, what counts as useful? You say, I want to maximize utility. All right, well, what what constitutes something that's, that's useful? How do we determine what's useful and what's not? You say, I want to maximize pleasure. All pleasures? even indecent pleasures, even base pleasures, even pleasures that we shouldn't find pleasurable? Um, Is maximizing pleasure the same thing as minimizing pain? Because actually, it seems like pleasures and pains are are quite different. And whether you're doing a maximizing of the good or a minimizing of the bad is going to be a distinct way of thinking about ethics. Desire satisfaction, should we really aim to maximize the satisfaction of all desires, even evil desires? So so there's a problem with the consequentialist thinker just first off the bat of what actually constitutes a good outcome. It needs an independent theory of the good, something that human nature can provide as a standard. But then second, it shouldn't just be about aggregates, the greatest good for the greatest number. Because that might mean that you end up instrumentalizing certain human lives for the benefit of the greater good. And all throughout human history, you can see various uh, politically political thinkers who say you have to crack a few eggs to make omelets. You have to sacrifice a few for the sake of the many. Certain lives are disposable for the greater good. And you see this type of kind of consequentialist thinking, um, you know, it's all throughout contemporary American bioethics. Look, we just have to experiment on a couple fetuses or destroy a couple embryos in order to whatever the greater good's gonna be. We need to have legalized abortion because it's better that those children be aborted than whatever the argument's going to be, right? You can see how consequentialism uh, doesn't actually respect every individual human being as a uh, center of value. That's why that Kantian, you know, I want to say there is something that Kant got, got right there. The natural law. Th- theory is not only going to provide uh, you know, kind of first response to consequentialism, uh, a theory of the good, it's also going to say that there are certain actions that are always and everywhere contrary to the human good, right? certain moral absolutes. This is where you'll get prohibitions on things like killing the innocent. It is always and everywhere wrong to intentionally kill the innocent. Uh, that's obviously going to be applied to the beginning of life with abortion, the end of life. Uh, euthanasia, assisted suicide. It's also going to be applied with the conduct of war. You cannot intentionally target non-combatants, right? This is why terror bombing, um, uh, dropping nuclear bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for example, when you're targeting civilian populations violates the natural law, violates just war theory, just war theory being an outgrowth of natural law theory. Non-marital sex, always and everywhere wrong. And there's not going to be a greater good for the greater number defense of it. The only way in which sexual activity actually promotes human flourishing is when it takes place inside the confines of marriage. If it takes place outside, it's always and everywhere contrary to human nature, to human good, to human flourishing. So the natural law tradition is going to be quite different uh, than consequentialism. Okay. those three traditions, um, the Uh, uh, habesian Humean theory of instrumental rationality, um, uh, Kantian Kantian deontology, and then uh, consequentialism, utilitarianism, I think more or less are just, you know, root and branch misguided. The next three theories that I wanna look at aren't so much misguided as they are incomplete. Uh, And I think all of them um, have something to do with Christian ethics rightly understood. A, A sound ethical theory will Um, uh, uh, incorporate aspects of all three of these traditions, but I don't think any of them is foundational. Uh, And so first, virtue ethics. Virtue is a big part of a sound moral theory. We want to embody the virtues, live out the virtues. We want to develop the virtues. The virtues are what enable us to actually live out the truth. And you can think about the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. You can think about the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, courage, and moderation. But the virtues themselves don't tell us what's the courageous thing to do or the prudent thing to do. The virtues themselves don't tell us what are the ends that I ought to seek, what are the moral norms that are supposed to govern my action in pursuing those ends. Right? The virtues are what enable us, empower us. You know, they're, they're, they're the habits that we form to allow us to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. But as a theory, they're not foundational. Natural law theory is. That said, uh, for those of you who are parents, I know some of you, uh, our parents have kids, I will probably not be teaching my kids uh, when it comes time to, you know, it already is time for the eldest, um, uh, about morality. I won't be teaching them like Thomistic syllogisms of the natural law. I will be teaching them the virtues, encouraging them to live out the virtues, thinking about what are the habits, the, virtu- the, 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 um, the character traits that they want to be fostering. And here's why great quote from C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man. He says, it still remains true that no justification of virtue, something like a moral theory that justifies virtue, will enable a man to be virtuous. Without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. I had sooner played cards against a man who was quite skeptical about ethics, but bred to believe that a gentleman does not cheat than against an irreproachable moral philosopher who had been brought up among sharpers. In battle, it is not syllogisms that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to the post in the third hour of the bombardment." And what he's getting at there is that as a matter of pedagogy, a matter of moral formation. It matters less whether or not you can justify your theory of morality than if you've inculcated the right habits, the right character traits, the right virtues. And so actually having the virtues is more important than having a theory of the virtues. All right, uh, next tradition, natural rights tradition. I mentioned this uh, earlier when I talked about the Declaration of Independence. There are huge debates within the scholarly literature about how to interpret John Locke. Is John Locke primarily a Christian thinker, uh, and this is like the divine workmanship portion of the second treatise, or is he primarily a um, liberal libertarian thinker, the self-ownership portion of the Second Treatise. Is he a natural law thinker or a natural rights thinker? Leave those all to the side for right now. It's an interesting historical debate. It's important. There are certain types of natural rights thinker. Um, You can look at someone like uh, Robert Nozick, the the former professor at Harvard, libertarian philosopher, author of the book Anarchy, State, Utopian, who thinks natural rights are the starting points. Uh, In a review of his book, Um, If I remember correctly, it was Thomas Nagel who said, you know, this is a book on natural rights without foundations, He didn't give us any justifications, foundations for these natural rights. Natural rights should be conclusions of the natural law. We reason to natural rights. We don't start with them. And so all of our rights, whether they're natural rights, political rights, civil rights, we should think about them, both what justifies our rights and therefore what limits our rights with an eye towards human flourishing and the common good, right? So we should think about any right, such as the right to choose, any right, what justifies certain choices, we do wanna have a right to have, but other choices necessarily need to be excluded because they're contrary to human dignity, human flourishing, right? This is how you can think about the uh, abortion debate. Um, So again, natural rights aren't gonna be foundational, natural law will be, but a sound theory of natural law will come to the conclusion that certain natural rights uh, rightly exist. For example, free exercise of religion. It's going to be, how does having freedom with respect to religion promote the flourishing of the religious life of the citizenry? But there are going to be certain limits to the free exercise of religion. I don't think anyone in this room wants to protect the free exercise of Mayan uh, human sacrifice. There are going to be limits based upon, again, what we understand to be the natural law, what we understand to be human flourishing. Okay, let me, um, last theory that I want to mention, um, divine command theory. And again, for these three theory, virtue ethics, natural rights, and divine command, it's not so much that they're wrong so much as they're either incomplete or they're not ultimately foundational. Um, And that might be odd to come to a, you know, a Baptist theological seminary and say, divine command theory is either incomplete or it's not foundational. What I want to argue here is that the natural law being the rational creatures, rational participation in the eternal law, that the eternal law springs more from God's intellect than from God's will. And that what's foundational is God has reasons for what he commands, that God is not arbitrary, God is not capricious, God is not just like you know this uh, edict decreeing guy up in the sky who's thundering down thunderbolts. God has reasons based upon what's authentically good for us uh, so that someone like Thomas Aquinas can say that we do not wrong God unless we wrong our own good. That we only sin against God when we also sin against what's in our own best interest. That God's commands for us are precisely those things that lead to authentic happiness, authentic flourishing. That's what I'm getting at where I'm saying that the command is not the foundation. Right? The creational order and God's creation flows from his intellect, from his reason, from the logos, I mean, this is, to my mind, I think I'm on solid theological ground, but I'm happy to have the, you know during the Q&A, we can get into that discussion. What I think we want to avoid, though, is the, the mistake of voluntarism. Uh, voluntarism coming from the Latin, voluntas, for will. The idea that morality is primarily about the will of a superior commanding an inferior. And you can see how voluntarism would be a problem in just um, even purely human structures. Why should I obey the man-made law because the governor, the mayor, the president is the superior, and he's just issued an edict, and I'm the inferior, rather than because it's an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by one who has authority. Right? And that's more or less the Thomistic definition of law there. Right? It's an ordinance of reason promulgated someone who has authority, but not primarily because it's coming from their will. That, that's what I want to um, stress there. A couple of other thoughts. One is that the content of divine commands, human nature, is going to be that standard, which is simply to say that creation is the standard. What God commands of us corresponds with how God created us. And we can know something of this through our reason. And then the the normativity of the natural law isn't command per se, but the intelligibility of our own goodness, the goodness that God created us to have. If you think with Augustine that evil is privation, it's a lack, it's something that's not there that ought to be there, that's going to explain why sin is evil. That's going to explain why something that's bad for us is evil. It's the fullness of our being is what has intelligibility, what has goodness. Something that's evil is going to be privation from that. Okay. um, looking at the time, I'm going to skip a couple of quotes. Um, What do divine commands do uh, in this way of thinking? I think they provide greater clarity, precisely because we are fallen, our intellects are darkened, our wills are weakened. It'll give us greater clarity about the truth of morality, the truth of the natural law. It'll give greater specifications. So we might know that we're supposed to honor God, but we don't know all the details of how to do it. Uh, We might know that we should have a Sabbath, but we don't know what day of the week is the Sabbath right? So you need revelation, divine commands to specify. And then I think it provides greater motivation, right? As you know that what you're doing is actually a way of loving God when you keep the commandments. I'll say more about this at the end of the lecture. Um, So let me wrap this up. When you look at the natural laws compared to those other theological traditions, you'll see it's about reason, not about passions or desires. That reason is what drives the train, not passion and desire. It's about goods, about ends, about the end of human nature, not just about rules or about duties that are detached from happiness. It's not just a bunch of hoops that we have to jump through or hurdles that we have to jump over, that the, the rules that come from the natural alteration are precisely because they protect human flourishing, human happiness. Um, so with that said, it's about happiness, not about desire, satisfaction, or pleasure, or utility. You know, it's not a hedonistic form of uh, consequentialism. The virtues are what enable us to choose the good. They're what enable us to do what is right, even when we might be inclined not to. Rights, insofar as they are justified, are about protecting the space for us to choose the good and to live out flourishing lives. And then commands are about reinforcing, clarifying, and specifying the moral truths that lead to our happiness. All right, so that's the end of the second section of this lecture. We're at 440, so um, I'm not going to get through all of it. But I actually think that gives you, just there, a fairly good um, uh, summary encapsulation of how to think about natural law vis-a-vis the three most prominent ethical systems you would be taught at a public university. So if you were just taking intro to moral philosophy, you probably wouldn't learn much about natural law theory or about virtue ethics. You would definitely learn a lot about consequentialism. You would definitely learn a lot about Kant and deontology. You might learn something about Hobbes and Hume. Maybe there would be something on modern virtue ethics. Maybe there would be something on divine command theory. And chances are you wouldn't get anything on natural law theory, right? I mean, that that's what modern, you know, philosophy 101, or not even philosophy 101, but moral philosophy 101. Uh, Probably it's going to be like philosophy 103 or something like that. Um, That's what you would be getting in the intro survey to moral philosophy. All right, let me say a little bit more um, just to uh, round this out, and then we'll have time for questions and answers. Third section of this afternoon's lecture, the starting points. The starting points are going to be enlarging the scope of what counts as rational. So, that we can reason beyond what Hobbes and Hume claimed, where the mind is just a supercomputer that's reasoning instrumentally about how best to get to predetermined ends, where we can actually reason about what's good in and of itself. Uh, and so, here, I, I, this, I mean, and this is what, if you read Aristotle's Nick McKeon Ethics, if you read uh, the treatise on happiness in um, the second part of the Summa Theologiae, this is what I think Aristotle and Aquinas are doing, right? they're actually demonstrating right in front of you, you can read it, how to think about what's the end of human nature, what's the uh, uh, what's the end that's going to be perfective of us. The distinction within Aristotle between um, means and ends, between instrumental goods and intrinsic goods, between proximate and ultimate ends, right? that type of rationality is part of human rationality. And it's something that uh, many modern thinkers wanted to discard with, and so this is another quote from C.S. Lewis. Again, it's from *The Abolition of Man*. He's criticizing the Little Green Book. Uh, if you're familiar with *The Abolition of Man*, it's you know, it's it's a contemporary um, uh, um, kind of uh, uh, pedagogy um, book meant to teach at that point, you know, contemporary um, uh, 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 Brits how to think about ethics, and it's very skeptical, uh, and it's trying to you know debunk our prejudices and our um, uh, perceived inherited wisdom, and then refounded on something scientistic, not scientific, scientistic, right? the, the debasement of science. And this is what C.S. Lewis says, the, point, the important point is not the precise nature of their end, referring to the authors of the Green Book, but the fact that they have an end at all. They must have, or their book is written to no purpose. And this end must have real value in their eyes. To abstain from calling it good, And to use instead such predicates as necessary or progressive or efficient would be subterfuge. They could be forced by argument to answer the question, necessary for what? Progressing towards what? Effecting what? In the last resort, they would have to admit that some state of affairs was, in their opinion, good for its own sake. And it's that last phrase there. Some state of affairs was good for its own sake. That's what Lewis in The Abolition of Man is encouraging readers um, to, to reclaim as the domain of reason. We can reason about what is good for its own sake, not just what's instrumentally good, what's efficient, what's necessary, what's progressive. Because all those, as he said, you know, it's subterfuge. Progressing towards what? Efficient for what? Necessary for what? We actually have to answer those questions. What are the ends that we want for their own sake? What are the goods that we want for their own sake? He goes on here. Um, uh, I'll just read you one sentence from this next one. He goes, we must therefore either extend the world of reason to include what our ancestors called practical reason, or else we must give up at once and forever the attempt to find a core of rational value behind all the sentiments we have debunked. All right, so he's saying we have to enlarge in the scope of reason. It can't be based on the scientific... Model of uh, uh, of empiricism, right? We have to enlarge in it, and this is what Aquinas, when he says, you know, what the ancients had called practical reason, this is what Aquinas would refer to as the first principles of practical reason. He says there, are, just as there are several first indemonstrable principles, therefore there are several precepts of the natural law. The precepts of the natural law are to the practical reason what the first principles of demonstration are to the speculative, because both are self-evident principles. So what Aquinas is trying to do is encourage us to think through critically. Well, what are those self-evident first principles of reason about action? What are the ends, the goods, that we can desire for their own sake because they're good in and of themselves? Various natural law theorists have come up with different lists. Um, you know, I'll run down just uh, the list is more accounting. It's a bookkeeping. You can you know debate around the margins of you know, what should be classified as what? how should we do the housekeeping. The important thing to note is that there are various ends that are going to be intrinsically fulfilling for us, things like our life and our health, knowledge of the truth, appreciation of beauty, skillful work and play, friendship, marriage, integrity, religion. The idea here is that as a physical being, My bodily life, my physical health, is one of the ways in which I can flourish or fail to flourish. As a rational being, knowing the truth or being ignorant. is one of the ways in which I could flourish or fail to flourish. As a social being, friendship with other people. Harmonious relationships is one of the ways in which I could flourish or fail to flourish. As a conjugal being, marriage. One of the ways in which I could flourish or fail to flourish. As a spiritual being, friendship with God. That's part of the natural law That's not, uh, it's going to go more. It's going to be part of the supernatural law as well, but grace builds upon and perfects nature. And it's our nature to be simultaneously physical, rational, social, sexual, spiritual. Given the type of nature we have, there are certain ends, certain goods that are perfective for us. All right, section four of the lecture. A full-blown theory would then say, all right, now how do we pursue those goods in a way that is um, uh, respective of, respectful of all of the forms of human flourishing, not just for myself, but of all creatures who share my same nature. Because my practical rationality recognizes that those things are good not just for me, but for any other creature that is essentially like me. Any other creature that shares my nature shares the same sets of ends and therefore the natural law governs both me and them and directs me to act not just for my own good but for common good, right? And so I want to act in ways that not only promote my health but promote and respect your health, that promote not just my knowledge but your knowledge, not just my marriage but your marriage. And what does that mean is we want to have a, a moral ecology that promotes truth, that promotes friendship, that promotes marriage, that discourages infidelity, that discourages... Uh, various forms of, um, uh, of immoral sexuality. We can save that to tomorrow morning as to, you know, the various forms those could look at, but historically in the United States we had laws against fornication, we had laws against adultery, we had laws against uh, pornography, Right. various ways in which we could say that a common moral ecology that promoted a marriage culture, that promoted a religious culture. Right? You can have laws that promote people's friendship with God in a non-coercive way. So simultaneously embracing religious liberty while also promoting the good of religion. A full-blown theory is going to say that there are therefore certain actions that we would never be able to do because they attack those things. I've already mentioned intentional killing of the innocent undermines that good of life. Um, Non-marital sex undermines that good of marriage. Um, uh, Lying undermines both the good of integrity and the good of friendship. Right? Anytime you intentionally engage in a false assertion, you assert something to be true that you know isn't true, right? both harming your inner harmony integrity, but also harming any form of uh, harmony, friendship, with another. And that's why both the Christian tradition, look at uh, Augustine, uh, Aquinas. These are moral absolutes um, because they're always going against human nature. It'll also then have something like the golden rule. Right? So think about you know, Kant has this as a universalizability principle. Um, Jesus, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Why? Because they share your same nature. The things that are good for you are also good for them. For you to be fully responsive to the direction of rationality, you can't just act for your own flourishing, but you must also act for others. All right, last part of the talk, and then we'll get to Q&A. From a philosophical perspective, practical rationality, those first principles that I've talked about, the various moral norms that would flow from them, they're the only guides that we have. Right? If, we, if you don't have revelation, you're not yet a believer, you don't have the Bible, the only guides you have are those first principles of practical rationality, the, the moral norms that govern our pursuit of those things. And they're true even if you don't yet know that God exists. Just based upon God, how God has created us and how God has created the intellect, we can grasp certain ends that are perfective of us. And if, we fail, if our will fails to be responsive to our reason, there's a certain defect there. There's a privation. A fullness of being in our will is lacking, and therefore the term that we use for that is evil. Right? Evil being a privation of a good when the will is not fully responsive to um, uh, what the reason has discovered to be good and the will acts against that, that's what we could call sin. All right, but once we bring God into the picture, this natural law theory deepens, and let me give you a couple of ways in which it deepens. First, even from a purely philosophical perspective, so when you're engaged in philosophical theology, so you're reasoning about God but you don't yet have revelation, you can know that God is the creator of our nature and the creator of our intellects, because we're contingent beings. We did not create ourselves. A necessary being, a perfect being, a self-sufficient being created anything that is not perfect, not self-sufficient, not necessary, creatures like ourselves. That's also true of those first principles of practical rationality. We discover them. We don't create them. We discover that they're contingent, and therefore, we should conclude, if we're thinking fully rationally, that God created those principles of practical rationality. This is what Aquinas is getting at when he says the natural law is the participation in the eternal law, that we're participating in God's reason. And so therefore, any time that we're following the natural law, we're cooperating with God. We're following God. We're participating in his providential care for his creation Anytime time we're partnering with him. We're partnering with providence. We're following providence if we're following the natural law because of who the natural lawgiver is. Secondly, part of our nature, as I just mentioned, is to be a a religious spiritual creature. And so part of our fulfillment as natural is friendship with God. And so part of the natural law is to orient us towards uh, friendship with the divine. But then here I want to pivot and say philosophy is not enough philosophy is not enough precisely because we're fallen. It's also not enough because even if we weren't fallen, at oh, the, the, you know, the, the very first question of the very first section of the Summa, Thomas asks you know, whether anything beyond philosophy would be necessary. And he says yes for three reasons. The truth about God would only be known by a few only after a long time of study and of work, and it would be mixed with errors along the way. And then he says, but because our entire salvation hinges on knowing and loving god god has revealed himself to us right so to fix the problem of our fallen intellect god reveals himself to us but we still have another problem even if we knew perfectly what the natural law was we couldn't actually live it out because of original sin right and so our will needs to be healed and so we need grace to live out the truth about the natural law and then lastly god elevates us beyond grace So it's not just going to be natural fulfillment, fulfillment in basic human goods, but supernatural fulfillment, divine sonship and daughtership, adoption by God, so that the final end of man will be the kingdom of God. Think about what Jesus preaches. He preaches that the kingdom of God, John the Baptist, prepare the way for the kingdom of God's at hand. Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And what's that going to look like? It's going to be the perfection, the fulfillment of our natures right? It's going to be enjoyment of life and health and friendship and knowledge and beauty, et cetera, et cetera, and all of those enjoyments in communion with the triune God, right? Now we see through a grass darkly, then we'll see face to face. So it's going to be both natural and supernatural fulfillment in the kingdom. And so in that way, I think theology actually does quite a bit of deepening natural law theory, right? Natural law can kind of um, uh, provide us with the starting points but when you put it into that larger uh, context uh, I think it takes on uh, a much greater depth and breadth and so my encouragement and then I'll just wrap up here and then we'll have time for questions at both microphones is that it not only be Catholics who do natural law theory uh, that we have Baptists do it. And I love the fact that Andrew Walker is on faculty here that he's teaching here that he's currently writing a book on kind of you know, a Baptist natural law theory. I hope others of you, those of you who are studying with him, those of you who are studying with better professors here at Southern, um, <laughs> I, I hope this becomes part of your moral vocabulary. I hope this becomes part of your theology, that you have a theology of natural law, theology of creation that includes the fulfillment of creation, the ends that God has uh, written into our nature, written into our intellects. Um, I'll have more to say tonight about how we can have uh, co-belligerency with respect to the natural law when it comes to law and public policy. But for now, let me pause and the, the, the floor is open.